If we're going to make a solid New Year's resolution regarding our marriage, it can't be from a place of what we are wanting or expecting to get out of our husband. Hello everyone, I hope you've been having a blessed Advent season. I promised that in this episode I would talk about New Year's resolutions. Um, but first, let's back up and revisit our topic from episode two. When I talk about women being the crown of creation and how women are the keepers and cultivators of culture in the home, I get a lot of pushback and some of it is very angry. Uh, one of the statements that I recently made regarding this was that nine times out of 10, a husband will not invest in a marriage where the first person he has to fight in order to do so is his wife. And so the biggest obstacle to a man's authentic investment in marriage is often the woman. Now let's add awareness of two data points behind that statement. In a 2015 study by the American Sociological Association, it was found that 69% of all divorces are initiated by women and that the number jumps to 90% when zoning in on college-educated women. If you listen to episode 11 on A1 and R1, that second data point, the 90% of divorces are initiated by women when zoning in on those who are college educated, that second data point should come as no surprise. We talked about how being raised and formed in and by an environment characterized by constant competition ends up being a huge mental blocker to the submission expected and commanded by God of a wife who is seriously pursuing sainthood. So I made this statement about men not investing in their marriages if they have to fight their wives to do it. And the responses that I received seemed like good material for this episode uh, for three reasons. Firstly, because the content of these responses are, I believe, representative of probably what a lot of women think and feel, or at least are tempted to think and feel, in response to hearing about the role of woman in the order of creation as we outlined again way back in episode two. Second, because this understanding of woman as the crown of creation is, I won't say essential, because I'm sure many married saints never thought much about it, but I will venture to suggest that it can be very helpful to the modern woman to embrace the call to holiness with greater abandon, precisely because it speaks to the modern day mainstream rejection of authentic femininity. And third, because these comments, which I'm about to address, reveal a number of mental blockers, which we have to get past uh, in order for my proposed New Year's resolution to ring true for any woman. Now, before diving into these comments, I want to give a quick shout out, which is rather overdue, honestly, this episode and our end of December media spotlight next week closes out our fifth month of weekly podcasts, which my husband and I have produced and distributed from the comfort of our apartment. <laughs> 
And now let's dive right into these comments and set ourselves up for a solid New Year's resolution. Here is our first comment. Quote, the church teaches that Adam was the one who caused the fall, not Eve, because he failed to lead and allowed his wife to. End quote. Now, understand this was a typed comment, so I'm doing my best to take it at face value, and I believe that what I'm reading here is a claim that Eve was blameless in the fall. This person is not saying that Adam and Eve precipitated the fall together. Rather, this commenter is very explicit that Eve was not to be blamed for any part of the fall. Let me read that again. Quote, the church teaches that Adam was the one who caused the fall, not Eve because he failed to lead and allowed his wife to, end quote. We can debunk this erroneous comment in three ways. First, through logic. Uh, if Eve were blameless, she would not have been cast out of the garden by a just God. <laughs> that does not make any sense. Why would Eve be punished if there was no sin on her part? And moreover, is that the God you want to believe in and to be living for? A God who would punish a perfect wife for her husband's sins. The second way that we can address this comment is with church teaching, namely what we covered in episode three about being an accessory to another's sin. We talked about nine ways identified by the church through which, quote, we may either cause or share the guilt of another's sin, end quote. Two of those ways were by counsel and by being a partner to the sin. And that is most certainly what happened with Eve. She ate the fruit and then presented it as a good thing to her husband. So she was partner in the sin and she offered bad counsel. And finally, the third way in which we can address this comment is by examining sacred scripture. Here are two mentions of Eve in the New Testament, both from the letters of St. Paul. This first one is from 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, quote, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ, end quote. St. Paul is very clear here that Eve is the one who is deceived. He doesn't say Eve and Adam. He says Eve. He says absolutely nothing about Adam. This first part of chapter 11, the first 15 verses, is given the section heading Paul and the False Apostles. And nowhere in these first 15 verses under this heading is Adam mentioned at all. Then we have another mention of Eve by name, also courtesy of St. Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 2 verses 13 and 14. Quote, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor, End quote. Let me read the latter half of that again. Quote, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. End quote. So very clear here. Also, Eve failed in a way that Adam had not. Her sin was unique and distinct from her husband's. 
And for her own sin, she was punished. She was not punished for a sin of Adam in which she had no part. And then just as a bonus, here's a quote from Pope Pius XII. Quote, Oh, what harm was done by Eve to the first man, to herself, to all her children, and to us by her curiosity to look upon the beautiful fruit of earthly paradise and by her conversation with the serpent. End quote. Oh, what harm was done by Eve, by Eve, and how the harm done by her was felt by all, starting with her husband, then her children, then all of us. Yes, Pope Pius XII is very clear that the fall began with Eve. Okay, next comment. Quote, Some marriages are in crisis because the husband is failing and the wife isn't failing. The order doesn't start with the woman failing in all or even probably in most cases. End quote. Yes, some marriages are in crisis because the husband is failing and the wife is really quite committed to doing everything that she possibly can to keep her side of the street clean. I am uh, in contact with some women who are in that situation. However, I find it hard to believe that the majority of husbands with wives who succeed in making them feel appreciated and respected day in and day out would be so shameless and ungrateful and cruel as to sabotage their marriages in spite of their wives' dedication. And my husband agrees with this. If you want to buy into the stereotype that men are just that stupid, <laughs> I'm sorry, but I can't agree. And to that point, I'm going to argue specifically against the second half of the comment. Quote, the order doesn't start with the woman failing in all or even probably in most cases. End quote. Remembering that Eve, that woman, is the crown of creation, the serpent was created prior to the creation of Eve. And of course, the serpent is simply a form taken at that time by the devil, who existed before any of the events recorded in Genesis. The point being, the devil had ample opportunity to approach and attempt to corrupt Adam before Eve existed. For all we know, he may have, right? The Bible is only what God has seen fit to reveal as conducive to our salvation to know. John 21 verse 25 reads, quote, But there are also many other things which Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. End quote. And from this, the traditional understanding is that what God inspired various individuals to write down and to compile and to preserve as the sacred scripture we know today is not a day-to-day, hour-by-hour account of events, but a selection of what God wants us to know and to understand and to live by. So with that said, we have no idea if Adam ever had any interaction with the devil prior to Eve's creation. He was told to name all the animals, was he not? So he would have named the serpent. But it doesn't matter because we assume that what does matter for us to know is recorded according to God's inspiration. And what we do know 
is that Adam was in the garden, that he was given instructions to not eat from that particular tree, and that he followed God's command. A command was issued, an explicit directive was issued, which Adam had the free will to break. Adam's free will did not come into existence upon or after Eve's creation. Adam had the free will to disobey God from the moment that he came into existence. That should tell us something. We should be paying attention to the fact that the first occurrence of, of temptation recorded in sacred scripture, whether or not it actually was the first occurrence, is the dialogue between Eve and the devil. God wants us to know that the devil approaches the woman with the intention of corrupting both her and her husband by causing havoc in their marriage. Ladies, the, the devil is not unintelligent. You can argue that he's stupid, obviously, for setting himself against God. But the devil is a very intelligent being. The devil is strategic and calculating. And we need to recognize that his approaching Eve was a strategic calculated move, which he repeats with each of us, with every wife. Let's go back to that data point that I shared at the beginning of this episode, that 69% of divorces are initiated by women. Now, obviously, that statistic is not from a study of exclusively Catholic marriages. However, given that the divorce rate among Catholics is not significantly lower than among non-Catholics, I'm going to assume that 69% or something very close to it is true among Catholics as well as non-Catholics. Ladies, it does not stand to reason that a faithful Catholic woman who has fulfilled her marital obligations in an outstanding and saintly manner would suddenly turn tail and initiate the mortal sin of divorce. You don't make a split-second decision to throw in the towel and start running a marathon towards hell, where previously you had been leading a truly outstanding life of exceptional virtue. A woman initiating divorce does not happen overnight. Yes, there are sins on both sides, but the woman is initiating divorce. If she's initiating a mortal sin, then there is a history of sin which has made her disposed to initiating this mortal sin. This is not the first mortal sin that she has committed against her marriage. The first comment that we were addressing was, quote, the church teaches that Adam was the one who caused the fall, not Eve, because he failed to lead and allowed his wife to. And as we addressed uh, that comment in three ways, via logic, via church teaching, and via sacred scripture, that's simply not true. The church certainly teaches that Adam sinned and that he failed in his headship, so all of his children, us, bear the curse of original sin. But the church does not teach that the fall began with Adam. St. Paul is very clear. Eve is the one who was deceived first. And the devil was very intentional in approaching her. The devil intended, again, for the corruption of both to be accomplished through the woman. 
So while there's obviously no formal study which I can cite to argue against this comment, quote, the order doesn't start with the woman failing in all or even probably in most cases, end quote, I'm going to put forward for your consideration that my guess that the devil approaching Eve was a calculated strategic move and that he repeats that calculated strategic move with each of us wives every single day is a heavily educated and very logical guess. Furthermore, I'm going to go into a bit of a tangent here. When we say that Adam failed to lead, that his sin was that he failed to lead his wife over whom he was tasked with legitimate headship, are we processing that fact as just a textbook fact? Or are we considering the nuance of human nature, which we ought to know so well? What would it have meant for Adam to succeed in leading his wife out of temptation? Have you thought about that? About how that would have gone down? We talked in our second episode at length about how it's clear that Eve gives into temptation with the best of intentions. Her motive is not to corrupt her spouse. Her motive is not to poison her spouse. Her motive is not to bring death to her spouse. She takes the forbidden fruit with the motive of assisting her spouse, of helping her spouse to be better, to be greater. When someone you love approaches you with the best of intentions, and yet you know that whatever it is that they're asking of you is wrong, still, how easy is it for you to say no? We associate yes, we associate saying yes with expressing love. Saying no and associating no with love is something that does not come naturally to us. That's why we have to teach children that we're saying no to them because we love them. It does not come naturally to them to understand this. We have to pray for God to help us accept his will when it seems that he is saying no to some request of ours. We have to pray as adults for the humility to understand what may seem like a no from God to be loving. This is a concept that has to be taught and it is a discipline which we have to develop. Take chastity prior to marriage. The desire to give one's whole self to another person is not an evil desire prior to marriage that suddenly becomes a holy desire on the other side of wedding vows. No. The desire within us to give our entire self to another person is always a holy desire. However, prior to marriage, the loving thing to do is to say no to the other person because the permanence implied by the conjugal act is not yet safeguarded by the public pronouncement of indissoluble vows. Now, do you think that Adam should have found it easy to say no to his wife, who is clearly approaching him with the best of intentions? If she had approached him with hostility and intimidation, sure, maybe he would have found it easy to say no to her. It's a lot easier to say no when you're turned off by someone's manner. But Eve was approaching him with what she believed to be love. She approached him with what she believed to be good intent. Are we, 
so cold-hearted that we cannot understand how this must have been a struggle for Adam. He is loved by God and by his wife, and yet God and his wife are now suddenly at odds. He has to say yes to one of them and apparently no to the other. Well, guess what? He chose his wife over God. Think about that. Adam chose his wife over God. Isn't that familiar to us? How often do we choose people we love over the God who gave those people to us to love? We are to hate the sin and love the sinner. And the reality is that too many of us treat Adam and consequently the sons of Adam, our husbands, with coldness regarding that struggle. Now let's take this tangent just a tiny bit further and consider the woman who does approach her husband with hostility and intimidation. And now we're not talking about Adam, who has up until this point lived a thoroughly perfect and virtuous life. But we're talking about a husband who is jaded and warped by original sin, any modern husband. When faced with a hostile wife, interestingly, when he fails to lead, he is also in a sense choosing his wife over God. Because when faced with disrespect, it is easier for him to give in, to be non-confrontational, to not attempt to put his wife in her proper place, to simply take the disrespect and retreat and withdraw and hide, than it is for him to step up, assert his God-given authority, and tell her that her behavior is thoroughly unacceptable and will not be tolerated. Do you see then how the devil can make this appear to a man to be a no-win scenario? If approached with bad counsel, backed by the best of intentions, leading his wife in the right direction means saying no to her. If approached with horrendous and disrespectful behavior, leading his wife in the right direction means a firm correction with regards to how he is to be treated as the God-ordained head of the household. Now, can you honestly say that you have consistently responded well when you've offered bad advice and your husband has seen through it and rejected it? Or that you've received correction humbly and sought to remedy your faults if your husband has ever been brave enough to call you out on your disrespect towards him. Because if you can, then you're in the 1%. The overwhelming majority of women take it very personally when men do not take their advice and are extremely allergic to any correction offered by their husband. And the reality of leadership is that forging one's own path, standing one's ground, and keeping others in place are essential aspects of leadership. You say you want your husband to lead, but do you? Do you want him to forge his own path? Do you want him to stand his ground when he disagrees with you? Do you want him to correct you when you are wrong to question and challenge his headship? I'm willing to bet that you have already been in countless situations where your husband attempted all of those things and you failed to receive them and to follow. Those are the consequences of original sin within you, within each of us wives. Next two comments, quote, 
Many women are already caring for the garden of their husband's heart, and their marriages are still in horrible crisis because their husband still chooses a life of evil and selfishness and disobedience to God. End quote. And also, quote, being the best wife in the world doesn't change a man who gives himself over to those things, and this happens all the time. It's not 1%. Satan is fighting for souls and winning. Someone needs to do something instead of perpetuating Protestant stereotypes, end quote. Now, these two comments were not accompanied by any sort of links to any studies. <laughs> And so the way that I am looking at them is that they are potentially anecdotal claims, uh, maybe based on what is seen in their circle of friends. I have said time and again that I operate off of the assumption that the overwhelming majority of Catholic husbands are not cruel men. And I back these up with two data points from organizations which I respect heavily. The first is the Alexander House. In their marriage disciples program, my husband and I learned rules of engagement, which I touched on in our November end of the month episode. The Alexander House has helped over 4,000 couples to date to turn their marriages around. The second data point is Laura Doyle's Empowered Wife program, where she coaches wives exclusively. And through this program, she has helped over 15,000 plus wives to date turn their marriage around. And lest you suppose that they are only operating under some illusion that they have succeeded. Laura is currently in the middle of a man panel on her podcast. She has been interviewing husbands of women that she has helped. And boy, are these men incredibly complimentary and vulnerable and overflowing with gratitude for their wives. The success of those two programs tell me that good men are everywhere and simply need good women to care for their hearts. If over 15,000 women can turn their marriages around by taking radical responsibility for their actions and not involving their husband in any kind of joint counseling or coaching process, and if over 4,000 couples can be helped by a program which, being completely in line with church teaching, emphasizes a husband's headship, and a woman's proper place under that headship, then I think my claims about many marriages simply needing women to step up and care for their husband's hearts to be pretty well supported. So all I can really say in response to these comments are, I'm really sorry for any woman who can honestly say that the number of good men that she knows is heavily outnumbered by the number of cruel men that she knows. But I'm pretty sure that if you're in that situation, you are in the 1%. I don't expect you to believe that. But I'm confident that if these comments are anecdotal, that if you were to broaden your circle of influence, you will find that most women do know more good men than cruel ones. And cruel, to be clear, is totally different from just broken. Okay, cruel means that someone delights in evil. And everyone is broken in one way or another. But few men are truly cruel. Misguided and broken and struggling do not always equal cruel. So again, I'm very sorry if you're in the 1% where you are somehow surrounded by 
more truly cruel men than good ones. That is a very specific cross. I hope you won't begrudge the relative ease of the majority of women for whom this is not the case. If you have been called to bear this cross, it's because it's exactly what you need to get to heaven. I hope you understand that. That what Christ allows in your life is what you need to get to heaven. I don't know your situation. I don't know how you got there. But I hope you trust that God puts people in your life that, you know, are the people that are supposed to be in your life for you to get to heaven. Next comment, quote, you can't only focus on what you perceive is taught about women. What is taught about men? Man is required to love his wife as Christ loved the church. Did Christ say, wait, I can't love the church until it first serves me joyfully? Heck no. End quote. This comment is predicated on a warped, fallen, worldly idea of fairness and also reveals a bad attitude and a double standard. I would argue that I actually spend a lot of time talking about men and their role. How often have I emphasized here the legitimate God-given authority of husbands over wives? But it's this latter part especially, this, quote, Did Christ say, wait, I can't love the church until it ser first serves me joyfully? Heck no, end quote. That is very telling. Neither did Christ say that wives were excused from serving joyfully until their husbands were properly loving and serving them. And the thing is, I'm a woman. <laughs> is it not then natural for me to focus on learning and sharing what is taught about women? I can't do for men what they won't do for themselves. And I have learned the hard way that trying to do so is inherently disrespectful. So how does it serve me? or my husband, or God, for me to point fingers and focus on what my husband should or should not be doing. The only person I can change is myself, so I'm going to use my time wisely to zone in on what my role is and what my conduct ought to look like as a wife. And that's what I'm going to share with the world. Next comment. Quote, men don't have to wait for women to do something before they can begin to lead. That would make women the leader. End quote. Um, I, I do not understand this attitude among wives where they use the truth that men are heads of the households to excuse themselves from being tasked with taking the lead on some aspects of family life. Nowhere else do women use this frightfully warped logic. In the workplace, the fact that you have a team leader or supervisor or manager or what have you does not mean that you are never given tasks for which you are 110% responsible. Why are women so allergic to the idea that in marriage, the fact that they are tasked with being completely responsible for various aspects of married life does not negate the husband's headship? And the only thing that I can come up with is pride, a prideful desire to be head of all or nothing. Pope Pius XII says, quote, God has endowed woman more than man with a sense of grace 
and good taste, with the gift of making the simplest things pleasant and welcome, precisely because although she is formed like man to help him and to constitute the family with him, she was born to spread kindness and sweetness in her husband's home and to see to it that their life together is harmonious, fruitful, and fully developed. End quote. That last part especially where Pope Pius Twelfth speaks of a wife's responsibility to, quote, see to it that their life together is harmonious, fruitful, and fully developed, end quote. This is a highly respected pope who simultaneously exhorted women to avoid becoming another Eve and never yield to temptations to usurp the scepter of the family. Clearly, Pope Pius Twelfth, in saying that women have these responsibilities, does not consider these responsibilities to challenge or negate the headship of the husband. And yet so many women upon hearing this and other exhortations like this, their objection is, but men are supposed to lead. Again, where else do you see this faulty logic applied? Not at work, not in group projects in school, not in any area of life where a woman feels that she excels. When a woman feels that she excels at something, she has no problem modeling it for her husband or anyone else. It is only when she knows that she is considerably less than perfect at something that she bristles. If told that it is actually her responsibility to model that trait. When a woman is conscious of her many blessings and is overflowing in her heart with gratitude, for example, she has no problem setting the bar for how frequently to express that gratitude. She is bursting with desire for her beloved to know how much she appreciates him. It is when she does not appreciate her husband as much as she ought to that she bristles at being told that it is her proper place to cultivate and maintain a culture of gratitude in her home. Furthermore, we teach that the person who can lead us to Christ most quickly and directly is a woman, the Blessed Mother. Are you saying that it's not proper that the saint who can lead us most quickly and directly to Christ is not a man? Mary's ability to lead and to guide and to direct us to Christ does not in any way detract from Christ's headship, from God's headship. And we are called to model Mary for our husband. That is as simple as it gets. If Mary's leadership and guidance towards her son through her impeccable example of holiness is no insult or denial to the headship of men, then we as daughters of Eve who will never be able to hold a candle to the Blessed Mother should not presume to argue that our modeling of holiness for our husband is somehow a denial of his headship. We have to call that out for what it is. That's laziness. That's just a desperate excuse for remaining mediocre and avoiding the universal call to holiness. Two more comments here. We'll address one, then talk about that New Year's resolution and finish things off with that last comment. So here's the next one. 
quote, sitting around and pretending that women rule everything and that their marriages won't be in crisis if they're guarding their husband's heart is literally nowhere in church teaching. The church doesn't teach anything remotely close to that, end quote. We just addressed what I will go so far as to call a deliberate and willful misuse of words like rule or lead. So let's talk about the second half. Does the church say anything about a woman's task of guarding her husband's heart? Well, now, (laughs) what is loving someone if not guarding their heart? Love is willing the good of the other person. Is it not good? Is it not in a person's best interest? for the heart to be guarded, to be preserved, to be helped to stay as whole as possible, to be healed when hurt, to be nurtured throughout the whole of life, is the active guarding of another person's heart not the work of love? Now, certainly the church does not guarantee that a wife's unfailing attention to her husband's heart is an impenetrable shield against crisis. But does that mean that we are excused from trying, from giving it our all? No. Not to mention, is it so hard to understand with logic, to reason, that the chances of a spouse engaging in behavior which sabotages their own marriage is significantly lower when a spouse feels loved? How apathetic is it to say, well, you can't avoid crisis by trying, so why bother? This was where we started in episode one, stating you cannot be apathetic towards your spouse. This kind of defeatist thinking is born of apathy, and yes, the feeling matters. St. John Bosco says, quote, it is not enough to love. People have to feel that they are loved, end quote. This is a saint, Placing importance on making another person feel loved. Just because true love is more and deeper than feelings doesn't mean that the feelings don't matter. Proverbs chapter 31 verses 11 and 12 read, quote, Her husband, entrusting his heart to her, has an unfailing prize. She brings him good and not evil all the days of her life. End quote. Okay, so no marriage is foolproof, but that is no excuse to wallow in misery or persist in making others miserable. Making others miserable is arguably not a sound method of getting anyone to heaven, and it all comes back to your vow. So let's talk about this New Year's resolution. Beautiful quote from the Alexander House, quote, Love has nothing to do with what you are expecting to get, only with what you are expecting to give which is everything, end quote. The New Year's resolution I propose for every wife is to recommit to your vows, to love and honor and cherish your husband unconditionally and without reserve. And so to get here, we have to break down any mental blockers predicated on fairness, on double standards, on bitterness or resentment. Another great quote, this one from Layla Miller, quote, Marriage is not about what you feel. It's about what you promised. There's a distinction between a desire and a vow. End quote. For a wife to make this New Year's resolution, may I suggest for your consideration 
that it is the only New Year's resolution truly worth making with regards to your marriage, a wife has to expect the absolute best from herself. She has to be willing to dare something great for Christ. She has to jump off a cliff and say, gosh darn it, I don't know if this is going to work, but I am going to give it everything I've got so that one day I can face death and judgment knowing that I have died to myself every day in order to get my husband to heaven and in my own pursuit of sainthood. The New Year's resolution I recommend for every wife is to recommit to your vows to love and honor and cherish your husband unconditionally and without reserve. And that brings us to our last comment. Quote, you spend more than enough time assuming women are doing the wrong thing in their marriages and telling how they should change. Men need to change too. Men need to be addressed on the ways they need to take charge in their marriages and obey God and do their duties as a husband and a father. We don't simply manipulate them or magically cause them to do it by being good wives. That's not how it works. End quote. Ladies, being joyful, being grateful, being respectful is neither magical nor manipulative. These are disciplines, these are best practices, which are concrete because they have their foundation in the order of creation established by God. Being joyful and grateful and respectful is what is commanded of you. God is most certainly not issuing commands for you to be manipulative or suggesting that these are magical practices. They are his commands. If you want to waste your time whining about how men need to change, fine, that's your choice. But there is no amount of time which is enough to spend working on yourself. To say that you have done enough is to claim to be a living saint. Show me the married female saint who has said that she has done enough that she has tried enough, that she has eliminated all of her own faults and is now at liberty to spend the rest of her life bemoaning her husband's shortcomings. Introduce me to that saint and I will quit podcasting. Thank you so much for joining us. You can find all the quotes and resources referenced in today's episode on our website. We'd love to hear from you. And we're looking forward to having you with us again next week on the Will to Wife podcast. Mm -hmm.